0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jeremiah chapter 27 this morning. 27. Is that right? Yes, 27. <laughs> we did 26 last week, 27 this week, 28 next week, Lord willing and rapture pending. Jeremiah 27, in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, thus says the Lord to me, make for yourself bonds and yokes and put them on your neck and send word to the king of Edom, to the king of Moab, to the king of the sons of Ammon, to the king of Tyre and to the king of Sidon by the messengers who come to Jerusalem, to Zedekiah, king of Judah. Command them to go to their masters, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Thus you shall say to your masters, I have made the earth, the men and the beasts which are on the face of the earth, by my great power and by my outstretched arm, and I will give it to the one who is pleasing in my sight. All right, this is what we're going to be dealing with here today. It's a powerful message, and it's remarkable the way that it's given and the audience that is uh, expected to receive it. Before we get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer to ask God the Father to set aside distractions and to humble us under the authority of His truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before You this morning, thankful for Your truth, rejoicing, Father, that Your Spirit indwells each one of us, We're thankful, Father, for the spirit of truth who leads us into all things, even the deep things of God. Father, I thank you for the blessings of studying to show ourselves approved. Father, as our days get darker, as uh, our fellow citizens are getting more and more fearful of what uh, is coming, Father, I pray that you would keep us stable, sure, and secure, Father, on the foundation of your truth. I thank you that we're not tossed to and fro by the winds of doctrine, but we're stable, and I rejoice in that stability. Bless us with more stability today, Father. Ground us in the unshakable kingdom that uh, we are destined for. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen. All right. Jeremiah 27. It's interesting here how he's given a message to preach, and he's going to preach this message, and he's going to do so through intermediaries. He's going to do, thro- do so through servants, through messengers, uh, you could even translate it angels if you wanted. The Hebrew language here speaks of messengers that have gathered together for whatever purpose they've come. Uh, God has his own purpose, given that they're all right here, right where God wants them. He's going to send them back to their home countries with truth. And so in the first 11 verses, I've only read six of them, I guess I've only read five of them, um, through the first 11 verses we have a rebuke. That is uh, being delivered here. Jeremiah rebukes five Gentile kings when he preaches to their envoys in Jerusalem. And you have what may very well have been a secret meeting. It probably was clandestine. It probably was under the radar uh, until the God who knows all things uh, instructs his prophet Jeremiah to take a stand and to very publicly uh, expose these messengers for who they are and why they're there and to send them back to where they came from with the truth of the word of God. And uh, we have a neat opportunity there. Um, As far as the time frame is concerned, verse 1 it uh, has a couple of textual issues um, that we, can, we won't really get into, but um, I think on the overall timeline, it's useful to, to pinpoint this as 594 B.C. and to take it as an equivalent time frame for chapter 28 and for chapter 29. And we'll have a reason for that next week as we see uh, the message of chapter 28 comes, and we're told that it's the same year as the previous message. Um, that's how chapter 28 begins. It says, now in the same year, in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fourth year, in the fifth month, and then we have the events that then follow, in the fourth year and in the fifth month. So whatever the uh, the time frame is for chapter 27, I believe it's that fourth year. I think it's it's useful to pinpoint that at, at 594 BC, sometime earlier in the year than uh, we have here in chapter 28. There are some manuscript issues, by the way. Uh, there's some text criticism studies that uh, don't have the name Zedekiah in this verse. They actually have the name Jehoiakim in this verse. And uh, some corruption of the, of the manuscripts that thankfully we have uh, Septuagint and we have other uh, Aramaic, we have other sources to be able to repair uh, what would otherwise be corrupted manuscripts. Um, so there we have it. Alright. So thus says the Lord... To me. Okay? Interesting when a prophet is given a revelation and and God speaks to him and gives him instructions. Make for yourself bonds and yokes. And uh, the expressions here are all in the plural, and I find it interesting that he's going to dress himself in this costume. I believe he's going to make a total of six sets. He's going to make his own set, and he's going to make a set for each of these five envoys and uh, and send them back to their homelands. Maybe even he makes uh, 11 sets, and perhaps he puts a set of yokes on each, on each uh, envoy and, and puts another one in their hands so they can go back and put it on their king, <laughs> all right, like their king would wear such a thing. But, uh, this is uh, kind of an interesting indication of what we have here. So make for yourself bonds and yokes and put them on your neck. And come back next week and you're going to see a false prophet's going to break the, the yoke and take the yoke off of Jeremiah. So we'll deal with that next week. Um, and send word to the king of Edom. And when it says send word, that's another manuscript puzzle right there. Right? Because literally it says send them, send the yokes. And uh, and that's why I believe he's making multiple sets here. And Kyle and DeLich likewise believe that uh, he's making multiple sets. He is uh, he's manufacturing these. Uh, you know, once you make a pattern on something, then you can mass produce additional sets of uh, of yokes and bonds. Send them to the king of Edom, to the king of Moab, to the king of the sons of Ammon. And in this list here, uh, Tyre, Sidon. There's five of them. All right. Three that are just east of Judah and two that are just west of Judah, but all in the periphery of Judah. All that would be, uh, if they chose to band together and defend themselves, they would all be uh, perhaps colluding to, uh, to resist Nebuchadnezzar, to resist the coming Babylonians. All right. And uh, my suspicion is that's exactly why they are there. The text does not say why these messengers were in Jerusalem, but the Bible does feature other alliances of five kings. And when five kings get together, uh, a lot of times they've got a very good reason for doing so. And as the scripture describes it, a lot of times it's an alliance for self-defense, an alliance for protective purposes. So, for example, you can read in Genesis 14, five kings got together in order to defend themselves against uh, uh Keter Leomer, who shows up with four kings and ends up winning. All right, and you end up with the Battle of Nine Kings. In fact, those were that was Sodom and Gomorrah right there, and the other three cities. And those five kings got together to resist Keir Leomer, and uh, and they lost. They absolutely lost. It uh, required Abraham to chase after him and to rescue his nephew and uh, to bring back the plunder back to Sodom if you're familiar with the story there. There's another story in Joshua chapter 10, all right? And uh, for the interest of time, uh, I'm not going to be turning to each one of these, but I encourage you to look these chapters up and do your own devotion, do your own study, and familiarize yourself with these uh, with these uh, incidents in Israel's history. But uh, there were five kings that got together to resist Joshua. There were five kings that didn't feel like being conquered. And uh, uh, they ended up hiding in a cave and getting captured and getting hung. Uh, uh, Joshua hanged all uh, all five of them. Likely, I do believe that this is the case here, that uh, they're gathering together. Uh, they're not discussing global warming or other things that uh, governments can get together today to, to debate. They, uh, they're coming together to discuss the Babylonians. And now that uh, Assyria has fallen and uh, there appears to be a vacuum of sorts, Uh, Babylon has overthrown the Assyrians and uh, Egypt is is backing off into the realms of Egypt. And it might be that uh, an alliance of of five nations or six nations, including Judah, that uh, an alliance of kings might be able to form a little uh, self-contained defensive position in between Babylon and Egypt. And I think that was likely the case. That's the reason for their discussions. Um, if you want more history on this, the uh, the uh, NICOT, the New International Commentary on the Old Testament, it has uh, a commentary here related to this. I'll just read a short snippet for you, and then you can get some more if you'd like. Um, the historical background to the to these years, all right, starting in 596 and going all the way down. Um, has been greatly illuminated by the Babylonian chronicles. And so we have secular records. We have uh, carved in stone, actually. We have uh, monuments that were crafted and, and different things because each one of these rebellions against Nebuchadnezzar, he was very happy to squash it and then boast about it on a, on a, on a, in a carved fashion. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, or Nebuchadrezzar, if you want to give it that spelling, was attacked by an unnamed enemy, possibly Elam, somebody to the east, in 595, he had to deal with a revolt within his own borders. In 594, he led a military campaign into Syria. Now, that brings him towards Judah, all right? And in fact, if you, once you crush the rebels in Syria, if there's more rebels in, in Judah and in Tyre and Sidon and so forth, then you're practically in the neighborhood anyway. They were uh, troubled times for Nebuchadnezzar, and small states in the west thought they saw an opportunity to revolt and throw off the yoke of Babylon. As it happened, the plan was fruitless. Zedekiah became involved, as the present chapter shows. But in the same year, the fourth year of his reign, the king went to Babylon. We're going to talk about that. Zedekiah makes a business trip to Babylon. And back when, you know, you don't just hop on Southwest Airlines and get there in a day. I mean, it takes weeks to get somewhere or months to get somewhere. And then the time you spend there and the travel time back. It was a significant journey for uh, Zedekiah to make. But it's clear from, uh, from Jeremiah 51:59 that he did make that trip. And we're going to talk about that. It's possible he made two trips. Uh, right. If you ever study in the book of Daniel and you realize when, when Nebuchadnezzar sends up that statue and demands worship, and uh, his vassal kings have to come and worship, they have to come and bow down and, and worship that statue. right? Of course, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't, and they get thrown into a fiery furnace because of that. Uh, but the other vassal kings did. And very well, it's not stated in the text, but very well possible that Zedekiah was among those vassal kings that came and bowed down to that giant statue in, uh, in Daniel chapter 3. All right. Uh, there is some ambiguity about precisely what Jeremiah did with the ambassadors. The Masoretic text seems to imply that Jeremiah made a yoke for each king as well as for himself. And I think that's, that's, that's how I read it anyway. It makes sense to me as I'm looking at the, the Hebrew text, the Masoretic text. Um, verse 2 does not require more than one yoke consisting of bars and thongs. It's okay for verse 2 to be plural and limited only to Jeremiah himself. We do the same thing in English. We talk about putting somebody in the stocks, plural. It's really one device that holds the head and the the hands. Um, However, uh, when uh, it says, send them in uh in verse three it appears to be plural again and sending them to the uh to the kings would uh, demand multiple multiple stocks anyway then uh, he examines the uh the uh, from the greek each ambassador would report to his ruler what he has seen and in that sense a yoke was placed on the neck of each ruler And then goes on to describe some of the things. Anyway, I wanted to just highlight for you the rebellions there as they're recorded in the Babylonian Chronicles. And if you want more on that, uh, Wiseman is the author you want to read, D.J. Wiseman, Chronicles of of Chaldean Kings. All right. Same as today, political problems, <laughs> all right? And same as today, sometimes uh, a ruler can, uh, can overcome some domestic issues if he just has a good foreign war to fight. And uh, sometimes it's the other way around, all right, depending on uh, what they're dealing with. So why are these guys in town? I don't like calling, well, I guess envoy is a good term, ambassador maybe a bit much. Uh, I don't think they're meeting openly. I think they're meeting secretly. And uh, they're called Malachim, which is our word for angel or messenger in the Hebrew. And, uh, and, and like I say, it, it's, to me, if this is a secret hush-hush meeting about how can we rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, then you keep it a secret hush-hush meeting. <laughs> you, don't, you don't send your high-profile ambassadors and announce to the whole world, oh, by the way, we're holding a conference here in Jerusalem discussing how to overthrow Nebuchadnezzar. All right? So I suspect it's clandestine. I suspect that it's, it's hush-hush. until the Lord sends Jeremiah in there with a set of stocks and puts one on each messenger and says, you go back to the king of Tyre, you go back to the king of Sidon, you go back to the king of of Ammon, and he knows who all five of these guys are and why they're there. And he sends them back to where they came from with a message from the word of God. And uh, that, I think, is is an exciting thing to uh, consider. Jeremiah is instructed to wear bonds and yokes. That's verse 2 and possibly, I think likely, made additional sets for the five Gentile kings that were being addressed. I think that it's a plural there in verse 3, send them uh, back to those five kings. And, uh, and interesting, you know, Jer- Isaiah had to walk around naked for three years. Here's Jeremiah who has to walk around wearing these stocks. And, and think about the, the visual impact that makes. Think about the um, the, the word on the street, as Jeremiah's walking around wearing this stuff, you know, word gets around. And uh, why, is, why is this prophet saying this? Especially since he's saying just the opposite of what all those false prophets are dealing with. We're going to see three times in this chapter, the false prophets and their demoniac message is, is being warned against. Don't listen to the false prophets. If you're listening to false prophets, it means you're listening to demons, all right? We don't want to be listening to demons in, uh, in any application. So he's instructed to wear these bonds and these yokes. The message is simple. Submit and live. If you submit, you will be allowed to live in place. You can live in your land. If you resist, you will perish. All right. So let's look at the content here. Verses 8 through 11 is the content. Um, I guess I stopped with verse 5. I'm going to come back to this. This is a great Christological prophecy here. Um. So uh, verse 4, command them to go to their masters saying, thus says Yahweh Tzivayoth, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, thus you shall say to your masters. Each of these spies is, is given a sermon to go preach to their king. I have made the earth, the men and the beasts which are on the face of the earth. By my great power, by my outstretched arm, I will give it to the one who is pleasing in my sight. And that is a long-term prophecy that references Jesus Christ in the second advent. It references the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ, where the lion will lie down with the lamb, where we have animal peace, where we have uh, restored paradise conditions on the earth. In the meantime is a short-term prophecy. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. So Nebuchadnezzar is going to serve as a type of Christ. He's going to be a foreshadowing of the long-term prophecy. And as they watch the short-term prophecy fulfilled, this gives a a tremendous uh, validation of the long-term prophecies. So now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. And I have given him also the wild animals of the field to serve him. That's different. That's unique. All, I mean, There have been other conquerors. There were other empires. But to have the animal realm subjected to a human king like this as a foreshadowing of the millennial kingdom, this is unique. This is extraordinary. This, this puts all of humanity and angelity on notice. Something different is happening here. And all the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then... Many nations and great kings will make him their servant. And so he Babylon will have a fall. There will be a, a, a destruction, and we know that because of Daniel and, and uh, other books of the Bible. It will be that the nation of the kingdom which will not serve him, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and which will not put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, I will punish that nation with the sword, with famine, with pestilence, declares the Lord, until I have destroyed it by his hand. So there's so much that's going on in this message. And these these spies have to go back and preach this to their king. All right? And uh, highlighting the unique nature here where he is given sovereignty over lands, over people, over animals. And that any resistance is going to be utterly crushed. Foreshadowing, of course, of Jesus Christ. He rules with a rod of iron. He conquers with a sword out of his mouth. And all resistance is going to be utterly crushed. The millennial reign is an occupying reign and it is, uh, it is a brutal reign for a thousand years stamping out rebellion morning by morning in uh, in the uh, final end of things as we do our millennial studies. It's not a happy reign. It's, it's after the millennium that Jesus has a happy reign. The millennium is, is a rough reign. It's the rod of iron that he has to rule with. Uh, verse 9 But as for you, do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your soothsayers, or your sorcerers. <laughs> okay? The pagan nations have a large uh, supernatural staff, uh, what I call the Supernatural Advisory Board in the Book of Daniel Notebook. All right? Uh, prophets, diviners, dreamers, soothsayers, sorcerers, and all of them put together, ignore them all. Listen to Yahweh Tzivayoth, the Lord God of the armies, the Lord God of Israel. Don't listen to those guys, because they lie to you. They speak to you, telling you, you will not serve the king of Babylon. They're preaching a happy message. They're they're, they're lying to those pagan kings, those Gentile kings, and saying, oh, no, no, you're going to be great. You're not going to serve the king of Babylon. This conspiracy will work. It will not work. It will not work. Um, They prophesy a lie to you in order to remove you far from your land, and I will drive you out, and you will perish. See, they've got a purpose. They're lying for a reason, and their reason is to get their land away from them. Their reason, their demonic reason, is to conquer that land. See, so they're, they, they're deliberately lying to those Gentile kings. But the nation which will bring its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I will let remain on its land, declares the Lord. They will till it and will dwell in it. Can you imagine? All they have to do is voluntarily submit all they have to do is, is, is listen to the voice of Yahweh Elohim, listen to the voice of the Lord God, and place themselves in a subjection. And then he will bless them and they can stay in the land. In subjection, they can stay in the land. All right? And uh, historically, we understand they don't. <laughs> they ignore this message, they listen to their liars, they rebel, and Nebuchadnezzar crushes them. But it didn't have to happen. In the permissive will of God, they could have remained, see, but none of them did. And I think this is what comes to the the essence of what we study when we study satanic thinking versus Christ thinking. The idea of willfully submitting, well, who would do that? Okay, Jesus would, and Jesus did. Jesus humbled himself. Jesus placed himself in subjection to stocks, to arrest, to crucifixion. All right? Jesus placed himself in subjection. And we have patterns here that uh, I find to be just, just beautiful in the description of a wide variety of doctrines throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. So really, the message is simple. There's two parts to it. First of all, submit. Submit and you live. Resist and you will die. But then secondly, quit listening to those demons. All right? Don't listen. Ignore the demonically prophesied lies. And that one there is the is the element that gets repeated three different times in this chapter. Quit listening to the liars. Quit listening to the liars. Hard to do in a political season, I know. (laughs) When there's commercials everywhere, TV, radio, and internet and everything else. Can't even browse a website without a political ad popping up. Ignore the demonically prophesied lies. And here it is in verse 10. They prophesy a lie to you. We're going to spot it again in verse 15 when, the, when Jeremiah is preaching to Zedekiah. I haven't sent them, declares the Lord. They prophesy falsely in my name. Again, same purpose clause. In order that I may drive you out, that you may perish, you and the prophets who prophesy to you. It gets repeated a third time in verse 16, this time to the people, to the priests and to the people. I spoke to the priests and to the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, Do not listen to the words of your prophets who prophesy to you, saying, Behold, all right, quit listening to the demonically prophesied lies. If it's not the Holy Spirit sending them, don't waste your time. and you Don't listen. Don't bring yourself to harm. They're lying for a reason. Give it no attention. Ignore it totally. Listen to the Lord your God. That's who you should fear. That's who you should serve. This is what the uh, kings are told to do. Now, there is such a beautiful prophecy here. Christ is prophesied and typified by Nebuchadnezzar, the servant of Yahweh. And there's such an emphasis made on this. There's two Gentile kings that have such titles Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians and Cyrus of the Persians. Cyrus is even more so. Cyrus is not only a servant, Cyrus is called a shepherd. Cyrus is given shepherd terminology. But uh, both Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus, two Gentile kings, a Babylonian and a Persian, two Gentile kings are are used by the Lord at this time to paint an amazing picture of Christ. They get to foreshadow the coming of Christ. God is going to, at the same time, it's it's crazy, at the same time he's, he's vacating his own Davidic throne. He's working through two Gentile kings. It's an amazing thing to consider. This has been, um, it, it's almost unthinkable as far as the Old Testament up to this point until he starts working this marvelous work. See, it's, it's, um, when, you, when you consider the ages and you consider the unfolding of the Old Testament and you consider how with the call of Abraham we now have a division between Jew and Gentile. And from Abraham onward, everything has been centered on the Hebrews, on the Jewish people. Everything. Every prophet's been a Jewish prophet. Every scripture's been a Hebrew scripture. The stewardship has been vested in Israel for, you know, all this time, 2,000 years from Abraham to Christ. Everything is centered on on the Jewish people. And the Davidic throne has eternal promises. But in this century, in this decade, in the the very uh, time frame that we're studying here in the book of Jeremiah... It might appear that that something extraordinary is happening here because the Davidic throne is vacated. It is absolutely vacated, and the temple is destroyed, and the, the vessels are plundered, and the glory departs. The city is leveled. All right? And God lifts up two Gentile kings and works through these men. They both get saved. Nebuchadnezzar gets saved. You can see that in the book of Daniel, Cyrus gets saved. All right. You see how they're used. You see how they fear Yahweh. How they bless the Jewish people in their day, in their administration. It's an amazing thing. All right. Describing Nebuchadnezzar as the servant of Yahweh not only happens here, it'll come back again. Or we saw it once already in chapter 25 and verse 9. Uh, we'll see it again in chapter 43 and verse 10. But three times in the book of Jeremiah Nebuchadnezzar is called the servant, the servant, the bondservant of Yahweh. And this uh, this grabs our attention. All right. So I have given all these lands. Again, I'm going to back up here to verse 5 and verse 6. Just to understand what's happening here. Let's get some stability in our thinking. On an overall plan from Alpha to Omega. It's not about us. It's about Jesus Christ. God the Father is working a plan towards magnifying His Son for all eternity. So I have made the earth, the men and the beasts which are on the face of the earth, by my great power, by my outstretched arm. And we have expressions of God's marvelous dealings, his power and his outstretched arm. And I will give it to the one who is pleasing in my sight. And just so that you don't miss it, <laughs> when he comes up out of the water at the River Jordan, the, the heavens are open, and the voice from heaven says, That's him. Behold, my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. We cannot mistake that Jesus of Nazareth is the son of God, the well-pleasing son, the well-pleasing servant. I will give it to the one who is pleasing in my sight. And so we need, we need a broad understanding of scripture from Genesis to Revelation, from Alpha to Omega, that centers on the glorification of Jesus Christ. That's why we have him as, this, as the focal point of everything else. And he will be given the land of Israel in the millennium. And he will be given the ends of the earth in the new heavens and new earth for the fullness of time. All right. Key that we understand these things. All right. Then, verse uh, 12. I spoke words like all these to Zedekiah, king of Judah. All right. New sermon, new topic, but same sermon, just a different audience. Jeremiah repeats his message to Zedekiah. And perhaps he may even makes a set of yokes for him too. I don't know. But he's going to deliver that same content to Zedekiah that he just delivered to those five kings or to the five spies so that they can go and deliver to the five kings. He repeats his message to Zedekiah, treating him on an equal footing with the five Gentile kings. And that grabs my attention too. All right. Treating him just like he's treating the five Gentile kings. That's extraordinary. But he gets a chance to repeat a sermon, you know. Like uh, <laughs> as it's it's always fun to be a guest speaker somewhere, Corpus Christi or wherever, or Houston or wherever you go, and you, you you fill a pulpit somewhere. And and man, I got all kinds of messages I can deliver because I've already delivered them here. All right, so grab some Galatians material, grab some some Jeremiah material, whatever it is. It you know it's uh, simple to do. Just preach it again. It's a different audience. They didn't hear it the first time. Or, and even if they did, it doesn't hurt. They can hear it again. All right. Jeremiah gets to preach it again. Now he gets to preach it to, to Zedekiah. There's no soothsayers or, or there's no uh, fortune tellers, but there are false prophets. And they get addressed here as well. It's a short section, 12 through 15. I spoke like the, uh, words like all these to Zedekiah, king of Judah, saying, bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon, and serve him and his people and live. Again, sub- subjection and you can live. Why will you die, you and your people, by the sword, famine, and pestilence, as the Lord has spoken to the nation which will not serve the king of Babylon? So do do not listen to the words of the prophets who speak to you. All right? Now, Like I say, this is Jerusalem. This is is the kingdom of Judah. So King Zedekiah, he doesn't have the full spectrum of of pagan demoniacs like the the Gentiles do. He at least maintains a form of of decency, you know, with with prophets. But they're all false prophets. And they're preaching the same thing that the the soothsayers are preaching in the Gentile lands. They're, They're all preaching the same thing. Hey, let's band together. Let's band together and resist and we can overthrow, we can, we can stay independent if we band together. And the same motivation, notice they had the same purpose clause that the Gentiles had. See, they're lying. So do not listen to the words of the prophets who speak to you saying, you will not serve the king of Babylon for they prophesy a lie to you. They prophesy a lie to you for I have not sent them, declares the Lord, but they prophesy falsely in my name in order that, and here's what's key, I may drive you out. I may drive you out. One thing that's interesting uh, in contrast with the Gentiles, when demons are whispering in the ears of Gentiles, you know, they can get all distracted and they can start serving and all kinds of horrible things can happen to a Gentile kingdom, right? read read Daniel chapter 10 sometime and find out there was a fallen angel that was in charge of Persia a fallen angel that was in charge of Greece a fallen angel that's in charge of all these Gentile nations but Michael the archangel is the one who stands and defends the Jewish people he stands and defends Israel so if the demons want to reflect Israel what do they got to do? they can do whatever they want to do to a Gentile nation but to the Jewish nation what do they got to do? They have to seduce the Jewish nation into voluntarily joining in their program. And then when they do, what happens? Yahweh Himself disciplines them. All right? Yahweh Himself disciplines them. And I know this is a bit of a side trip, I don't mind making it, because I think we're maladjusted in our generation towards the nation state of Israel. We've got a president that hates Israel. And we want to be really clear on this. We better serve Israel, we better love Israel, we better bless Israel or Yahweh Elohim is going to curse the United States of America. That's guaranteed. But what these demons learned a long time ago, what these fallen angels learned a long time ago, goes back to Balaam. Balaam did everything he could to curse Israel, and he knew he couldn't. God wouldn't let him. Right? God even preaches to him through a donkey to wake him up. Say, you can't curse whom God has blessed. So he fails to curse Israel. But what does he do then? He coaches Midian or I'm sorry he coaches Moab. And what does Moab do? Moab sends all the women over, the Moabite women, seduces Israel, gets them involved in their fornication and their uh, their idolatry. And then Balaam's mission's accomplished. He doesn't have to curse Israel anymore. God himself is going to judge his own people for their own idolatry. See how that works? So can't can't curse Israel, but we can seduce them, lead them into into idolatry, then God himself will judge them. So we see here in Jeremiah 27. They prophesy, verse 15, they prophesy falsely in my name in order that I, Yahweh speaking, Yahweh may drive you out, that you may perish, you and the prophets who prophesy to you. And that's that's the whole operation of it there. Amazing, isn't it? That's why I say it's demonically inspired. Why are they lying? A false prophet would not prophesy for his own demise, but the demons inside that false prophet would prophesy for that false prophet's demise. And that's what's happening. All right. The exaltation of Nebuchadnezzar is unprecedented in human history because it includes sovereign majesty over man and beast including sovereign majesty over man and beast. And we only have glimpses of it in the Bible. I wish we had more. Think about how extraordinary it might be. You know, the, the, the lion's den is, is in this history for a reason. And, and, and it's, to me, it's, it's a curious thing. The power that Nebuchadnezzar had over the beast, and then, and then his own discipline when he's given the mind of a beast, when he has to operate under that discipline for a time. Sovereign majesty over man and beast, a, a true foreshadowing of what's going to happen in the millennial kingdom when Jesus Christ exercises sovereignty, sovereign majesty over man and beast. And it's not only mentioned here, it's mentioned in Daniel 2. And uh, and I think it's stated this way for a reason. And like I say, if, if, if there's more detail, perhaps we'll find glimpses elsewhere in scripture, but it's... Um, It may be that that our curiosity won't be satisfied until we get to heaven and learn more of these details. But this is spoken of in Daniel chapter 2, the majesty that uh, Nebuchadnezzar has over man and beast. Uh, In Daniel 2, he's given a vision of a great statue, and he's the head of gold. And the explanation comes, you are the head of gold. Uh, And and in that, he says, um, you, O king, are the king of kings. The King of Kings. Does that get your attention? Is that a title that means anything? Of course it means something. It means everything. Our Savior is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But here it's Nebuchadnezzar. You, O O King, are King of Kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them to your hand, and he has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold, and boy, that just jumps out. And that just jumps out. I mean, other other empires have risen before and since, and other empires. I mean, you can conquer lands, you can subjugate people, but to have the animal realm of existence subservient, voluntarily subservient, entering into your under your sovereign majesty—that's that's different. And like I say, I wish we had more info on it. It'd be kind of fun to learn what uses those animals were put to and what um, other practical things took place. Anyway, um, hints of it there. And all of that's foreshadowing of, of Christ. All right? All of that's foreshadowing of Christ. Nebuchadnezzar is a type of Christ in this kind of conquering, in this kind of conquest. He was unstoppable. And uh, as such, Jesus will be unstoppable at Armageddon and the whole campaign leading up to the Millennial Kingdom. Submit as a vassal. Submit as a vassal is what Nebuchadnezzar is told to do here. I'm sorry, what Zedekiah is told to do here. Submit as a vassal to Nebuchadnezzar with no hint of Abrahamic or Davidic covenant exceptionalism. As you read these verses in 12 through 15, there is no difference between Zedekiah and the king of, of Edom, the king of Moab, the king of Ammon, the king of Tyre, the king of Sidon. Their messages are virtually identical. I think the only distinction I can find is, is, in, is that Zedekiah doesn't have the soothsayers and, and other folks that, uh, that these pagan kings have. No hint of the Abrahamic covenant. No hint of the Davidic covenant. No assurances, by the way, of any, of any such thing. And there's a reason for that. You see, Zedekiah is not in the line of Christ. Zedekiah is a son of David, but he is not, he is not, uh, he's on that throne in permissive will. But Jeconiah, the one that was carried away in 597, the one that was carried away a year before, the one that was carried away, that's where the remnant was being preserved. Alright? Daniel is in Babylon already. Ezekiel is in Babylon already. The, the, the 10,000 that were carried away a year before, they're in Babylon already and they're not in chains. They're, they're living as free citizens. They're, yes, they're, they're, uh, they're in exile. They're not allowed to go back. But they're getting prosperous. Daniel's in high positions of, of government service. All right. They're planting fields. They're, they're thriving in business. They're doing well. God has delivered his remnant already. Zedekiah back in Jerusalem is, is the one that's there for judgment. He's not treated as a Davidic son. He's treated as a Gentile king. And this is interesting to me. He, he is commanded to submit as a vassal with no hint of Abrahamic or Davidic covenant exceptionalism. He's being treated in this message on equal footing with the five Gentile kings. Isn't that sad? I find that sad. It's also, in some respects, it's, a, it's, it's a poetic justice. It's, it's In some respects, it's, it's the fulfillment of what Israel wanted when they first demanded a king in the first place. You remember when, during, when, Saul was, uh, when Samuel was the prophet and they said, we want to have a king like all the nations around us. <laughs> and Samuel said, are you kidding me? God is your king. You're a unique nation. But they wanted a king like all the nations around them. And they end up with Saul. For 40 years, before they get David for 40 years, but they wanted a king like all the nations around them. Here, Zedekiah is being treated as a king like all the kings around him, and I find that interesting. Related to related to that, in Jeremiah 51:59, as I mentioned, or as the uh, Nikot commentary mentioned earlier, uh, there is reference to Zedekiah's travels and submission. 51:59. Uh, Man, that's a long chapter, 64 verses in that chapter. Look ahead to the calendar and see what Sunday that's going to end up on. Um, but here, uh, the message, and then while he's traveling there, he's going to carry a letter. The message which Jeremiah the prophet commanded Saraiah, the son of Neriah, the grandson of Messiah, when he went with Zedekiah, the king of Judah, to Babylon in the fourth year of his reign. Recognize that? It's the same year we're studying this morning. It's the year that chapter 27 gets written, 28 gets written, 29 gets written, and then Zedekiah travels to um, Babylon and submits. He puts the yoke on. Anyway, and so uh, Jeremiah wrote in a single scroll all the calamity which would come upon Babylon, that is, all these words which have been written concerning Babylon, and Sariah has to read it out loud when he gets it. Anyway, then we'll cover that in that chapter. So later in that very year, Zedekiah will travel to Babylon and display his submission. All right. And Zedekiah gets, you know, 11 years. He gets a, a longer period of time. And Jehoiakim only got three months, right? Jehoiachin got three months. Zedekiah gets 11 years. Until what? Until he takes the yoke off and starts to rebel. And then God proves himself faithful to these promises. God ends up crushing him. All right, then for the third time in the chapter, Jeremiah urges his hearers to ignore the prophesied lies. Ignore them. Don't listen. Don't listen. For the third time in this chapter, chapter 16 follows after, I'm sorry, verse 16 follows after verse 10. After verse 15, do not listen. So I spoke to the priests and to all this people saying, thus says the Lord, do not listen to the words of your prophets who prophesy to you. Stop listening. The priests and the people of Jerusalem are urged to reject false prophets and their happy messages. If you might remember last week, we had a tandem. There was a a triplet. Remember that? The priests, the prophets, and the people. And the priests and the prophets and the people, they all wanted Jeremiah to die until the politicians got involved. And then the politicians got involved and what happened? The people, always fickle, the people crossed the line. And the people stopped listening to the priests and the prophets, and the people started listening to the politicians. Except they were called officials in chapter 26. I like politicians because it keeps the P going, and I can keep my alliteration operative. But the, So the people, last week, they were listening to the prophets and the priests until the politicians got involved, and then they switched, and Jeremiah was not executed last week in chapter 26. Now, this week in chapter 27, probably the very same year, all right, maybe a year later, but in any event, in a short time thereafter, um, now we've got priests and people that are being urged to ignore the prophets. Because those prophets, except for Jeremiah, those prophets are all liars. I'm starting to suspect that there were no true prophets remaining in Jerusalem except for Jeremiah that the only true prophets had already been packed up and sent to Babylon in 597. When, when Ezekiel was shipped off, All right, Daniel was already there. He's been there since 605. And so from 597 on, if there's another legitimate prophet in, in, in Jerusalem besides Jeremiah, I don't know. Okay, There might be some faithful uh, scribes and some faithful... Uh, we saw uh, an old man last week that stood up to defend Jeremiah, but I don't know that we have any more faithful prophets. They all seem to be liars. Next week we'll be introduced to Hananiah, and uh, and he's a a piece of work. All right. So the priests and the people of Jerusalem are urged to reject false prophets and their happy messages. You know, in troubled times, the guy that's just blowing smoke and doing nothing but, hey, happy days and sunshine, everything's going to be great. Why are you telling me that? <laughs> are you telling me what I want to hear? I mean, I, I, I'm not sure they have reality. As ugly as it is, as bad as the news is, if it's real, it's real, and I want to know about it. If it's not real, I don't want to just swallow something and, and hope that it's true or want it to be true. Wanting it to be true doesn't make it true. I need I need truth, not just happy messages. And here's what they're saying. And notice how it's crafted. The content of verse 16 was not told to the kings, Zedekiah was not told to the Gentile kings, but this is part of the lie that was given to the priests and the people. So do not listen to the words of your prophets who prophesy to you saying, behold, the vessels of the Lord's house will now shortly be brought back again from Babylon for they are prophesying a lie to you. Here's what they were promised. We're getting the ark back. We're getting the the other plundered vessels back. We're getting the table of showbread back. We're getting the candlestick back. We're getting the vessels that had been plundered. They're coming back. All right. Now that's kind of cool. If it happens, wow. All right. It's not going to happen. It's a lie. And uh, a couple of things that are are intriguing to me about this. Normally, liars, when they lie about stuff, they lie about stuff that's so far out, they're not going to be proven wrong in their lifetime. But these guys are talking about soon. Those vessels are coming back soon. Now that can be disproved, and it does get disproved because the vessels don't come back. And so long as those vessels aren't coming back, these guys are starting to look bad. All right? And and to me, it's it's remarkable. If a false prophet is so brazen as to say something that's going to be fulfilled soon, I think it it demonstrates their total fearlessness. That they can be the, the biggest liar on earth and it doesn't matter. No one's going to hold them accountable for these lies anyway. They're going to believe the lies because they want to believe the lies. And so they'll believe the soon lie because they want to, even though it's easy to demonstrate that it's not going to happen. You know, anyway, I, I'm, I'm going to be very cautious there because I can plunge into a into a global warming diatribe here very shortly. All these predictions, they have these long-term predictions about 75 years from now, 100 years from now, but see, they've also made mistakes by pointing out things very soon, things that were supposed to happen by 2015, and uh, well, guess what? We're past that. It hadn't happened, all right? And so we can point to the past track record and say, you guys are false prophets. Why am I listening to anything else you have to say? I'm kind of lamenting that we're not Old Testament believers. We could stone those people, All right, well, kind of kidding. All right. Don't listen. Don't listen to them. Verse 17, do not listen to them. Serve the king of Babylon and live. Why should this city become a ruin? Why should this city become a ruin? And there's a reason, and there's you can answer that. It's a rhetorical question. There is an answer, but you have to have a divine viewpoint to answer it. And yet, the promise that something is coming back, the promise that we're going to undo something, the promise that we're going to turn back the clock. How many people are living in a fantasy world that that we're going to return prayer to schools, we're going to return, that we're going to turn back the clock, that all the terrible things that have gone away over 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, that if we just get the right politician in office, we're going to start to undo some of that. (laughs) We want our vessels back. We still have some vessels. Notice there's a little bit that's left. Verse 18, if they are prophets, (laughs) I wish they were, you know, if they are prophets and if the word of the Lord is with them, well then, by golly, let them now entreat the Lord of hosts. Wow, if they're real prophets, they can inquire of the Lord, they can entreat him, that the vessels which are left in the house of the Lord, in the house of the king of Judah and Jerusalem may not go to Babylon. The best you can do is to preserve the remnant of what's left. Because the stuff that's gone is not coming back. The last little bit of what's left is the last little bit of what's left. And it's sad that that's all you got left. But that is all you got left. Pray that that doesn't go. Because what happens when that's gone? That means it's all gone. It's all over. So concerning the the, the pillars, there were two monster pillars in front, uh, Jackin and Boaz, the two pillars were out front. And um, the sea, which was a, a huge laver type of thing. And then the stands and the rest of the vessels that are left in this city, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, did not take when he carried into exile Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. That was a year prior in 597. Uh, from Jerusalem to Babylon and all the nobles of Judah and Jerusalem. Yes, thus says the Lord uh, of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that are left. There's an assortment that's still left. Where are they? Well, some of them are in the house of the Lord. Some of them are in the house of the king of Judah. And some of them are in Jerusalem, stashed in different places here and there. And because they got stashed away, they got preserved. They got preserved. All right. However, they will be carried to Babylon and they will be there. It's going to happen. It's going to happen in 586. All of Jerusalem is destroyed. The whole thing gets plundered. They go into a 70-year captivity. They will be carried to Babylon and they will be there until the day I visit them, declares the Lord. Then I will bring them back and restore them to this place. So you're going to have false prophets promising a restoration. But restoration won't happen until the day of visitation. All right, Until Yahweh himself comes. The word becomes flesh and dwells among us. The word comes in second advent and conquers. All of these are referred to as days of visitation. This becomes a whole doctrine right here. Man, I would love to spend weeks and weeks on this. We understand temple vessels were plundered when Jeconiah was taken captive. We see them in the book of Daniel. King Belteshazzar takes them out of storage and, and, and throws a big orgy, a big, a big drinking party uh, on the very night that Babylon falls. And they're drinking out of the holy vessels. They're drinking out of the temple vessels when the writing appears on the wall. You can read about this in Daniel chapter 5. These vessels had been plundered when Jeconiah was taken captive, false prophets were promising these vessels would soon be returned. Soon be returned. All right? And, and God's saying, no, that's a lie. That's a lie. They will not soon be returned. But see, that's, that's the promise. And false messengers telling you that, oh, yeah, yeah, it's coming back. Oh, yeah, 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 it's coming back. And um, it's just, it's, to me, I see it in our generation, I see it in our culture. When we think about all the things that are in bygone days, well, they're bygone, okay? The days are bygone and all those things are bygone. And are they coming back? Or should we be looking for a day of visitation? What remained in Solomon's temple were the pillars, the sea, and the stands. That's it. What a pathetic temple. The pillars, the sea, and the stands. The king's house had various other minor vessels stashed away, as did, I think, some other private houses in Jerusalem that are indicated there in verse 21. So what's left? Okay? What's left? What freedoms do we have left in our culture? Okay? And instead of bemoaning the way things used to be, let's... let's, pray hard to at least hold on to the the few freedoms that we have left. Because what happens when these go? What's left? The false prophets are urged to become true to the Lord and pray for the preservation of the last vessel remnants. You know, when he invites them, he says, okay, if they're real, then they can call upon the Lord. And so false prophets are urged to become true to the Lord. Hmm. urge to become true to the Lord and pray for the preservation of the last vessel remnants. And that's another pattern as well. I would love nothing more than to see such a revival in this country, to see uh, pastors that, uh, that have uh, a lot of earthly fame and a lot of uh, earthly wealth uh, get serious about exegetical Bible studies, <laughs> start feeding their flocks with truth, Of course, the first thing that'll happen there is, of course, membership will plummet, the money will go away, but the remnant they have left over will be hungry for teaching, and they'll have an opportunity to feed their flock. See, my prayer is that believers will quit wanting their ears tickled, they'll get serious for for doctrine, and they'll start demanding that their pastors start feeding them the truth of the Word of God. And what a blessing to be able to take a false prophet and turn him to the truth. To get serious about what Yahweh really is saying. So yeah, that's verse 18. "If they are prophets and the word of the Lord is with them, let them now entreat the Lord of hosts and start praying for the preservation of the remnant, the last of the vessels that have not yet been plundered. I think there's other applications there as well. Finally, restoration is promised but it's going to require a day of visitation. It's going to require a day of visitation. You see, what the people aren't thinking about, what the priests aren't thinking about, what we ought to stop to to, to wrap our minds around is that in permissive will, God is allowing his house to be plundered. And you think, why would he do such a thing? Why has he taken a Davidic king and put him in bondage in Babylon like Jeconiah? Why, has he, why is he allowing this to happen? What is he doing to that Davidic throne? He has an eternal plan for that Davidic throne. Why is he allowing it to be vacated? Why is he serving? Why is God at work in this generation with power and an outstretched arm? What's happening here? What is God doing in this, in this generation? Say. There will be a restoration, but it's going to require a day of visitation. And that that term to visit. If you want to do a Hebrew word study, have some fun with, with that, that term. Pakad is the verb. And it, it speaks of an appointment. It speaks of a sovereign divine decree. It speaks of um in, in some ways, visitation is almost a weak word because it seems like you know a, a jail visit or a hospital visit or, or just you know you're chit chatting over refreshments. Um, it, it's not. It, when God visits, it's it's typically painful. All right. When God visits, there's power being applied. There's judgment. Okay. His outstretched arm is doing something extraordinary. It is a day unlike other days. It is called a day of visitation. And uh, by the way, this expression is going to come back again in chapter 29. It's going to come back again in chapter 32. It comes up twice in the New Testament. All right, let me grab Jeremiah 29 in verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you and bring you back to this place. See, now God's omnipresent, He's everywhere. But when He shows up for a particular visit in a very special, precise way, with His personal presence, with His personal attention, that's that's extraordinary. And that's what's going to happen when He brings them back. Chapter 32 and verse 5. Zedekiah, king of Judah, Uh, will not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans. He will surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon. He will speak with him face to face and see him eye to eye. And he will take Zedekiah to Babylon and he will be there until I visit him, declares the Lord. If you fight against the Chaldeans, you will not succeed. Anyway, we'll deal with that because there's more conflict in chapter 32. In the New Testament, we have two days that are mentioned as the day of visitation. First Advent, second Advent. All right, God is with us. The Word becomes flesh and dwells among us. Luke nineteen forty four. Israel did not recognize their day of visitation, and that's why Jesus said uh, this temple is being destroyed. So uh, Jesus and his disciples are approaching the temple. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. Saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you, to surround you and then on every side, and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Isn't that sad? They crucified their Christ. They defiantly said, His blood be upon us and upon our children. They demand the release of Barabbas. And they demand the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And this is their consequence. The city is brought down. They did not recognize the time of your visitation. 1 Peter 2.12 I'm going to have to wrap up with this. Man, i like to stop and just take a month on the day of visitation and spell it out as a doctrinal study. I urge you as beloved, in church age application now, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against your soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation in the day of visitation. All right, well, we're going to have to leave it here. So for the week, we're going to leave Jeremiah in the stocks. All right? He's wearing the bonds. He's wearing the stocks. Next week, this rascal Hananiah is going to show up and he's going to break those stocks. And he's going to give a direct opposite message to Jeremiah's message. And he's going to call Jeremiah the liar. All right? And so we're going to see patterns here of things you and I face every day because we're the ones with the truth and yet we're regarded as deceivers yet true all right father I thank you for this day I thank you for this chapter I thank you for Jeremiah and I I pray father that uh, this chapter might hit us hard that we can dwell on it and consider it consider the vessels that have already been plundered the vessels of our nation's Christian heritage and uh, many of them are gone and they're not coming back so, Father, I pray that the, for the few vessels that do remain, that we might uh, pray fervently for their preservation and defense, that, uh, Father, you might be merciful. And uh, in all these things, we just come before you as your servants, as as uh, salt and light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.